Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Marcus Gibson. He is a John and Daria Berry postdoctoral research fellow here at Princeton University's James Madison program. He has his bachelor's degree in philosophy and ancient Greek from Duke University, graduating summa cum laude, and his master's and PhD from the program in classical philosophy in the Department of Philosophy here at Princeton. He has taught courses in ancient philosophy at Princeton University and Rutgers University, and when not recording podcasts, he is working on a book on the self-controlled character in Aristotle. He joins us today to work up the student teacher ladder to discuss Aristotle's great teacher, Plato, and a little about Plato's great teacher, Socrates. Marcus Gibson, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you, Nina. Thanks for having me. Uh, As I mentioned, we have you with us today to talk about Plato, a sort of introductory episode before we record a few episodes on individual platonic dialogues. Today, we set the stage. So let's start with a bit of biographical information. Who was Plato? When and where did he live? Sure. So uh, as you were alluding to, Nino, Plato's the middle figure in that famous trio of teacher and student, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Uh, So he lives uh, towards the very end of the fifth century into the middle, through the first half of the fourth century BC. So he's most active in the first half of the 300s BC. Uh, He comes from an aristocratic Athenian family. On his dad's side, he can claim descent from Solon, the great Athenian lawgiver, legal reformer, the man who's responsible for the reforms that in large part give us the, the famous Athenian democracy. So in that regard, he's sort of well set up for uh, a career in Athenian politics. Um, But he comes into contact as a young man, of course, with with Socrates, the man who in Cicero's famous phrase brought philosophy down from the heavens to the world of men, uh, into Mm. the city, into the midst of the city. And uh, this encounter, as far as we can tell, was enchanting and sort of set the course for uh, Plato's subsequent uh, career as the great and dazzling philosopher, thinker, and writer that we know him as today. Um, It's the trial and execution of Socrates in 399 BC, which is, if you like, the defining moment for him. Um, So one way to think about all of Plato's philosophical writing and what he devotes the rest of his life to uh, is a response to this. How could Plato's city, how could Athens, the men of Athens, the men who voted in the assembly, have executed Socrates, who, uh, to hear Plato describe it in the Apology and elsewhere, uh, Plato seems to have thought Socrates was the greatest blessing that Athens had ever received. Um, so how could this have happened? How did things go wrong? And how, how can we correct things? That's one way of thinking about what Plato's doing. Um, so after this, uh, he does spend some time abroad with some of Socrates' other students, that, that Socratic circle that we hear about, the circle that gathered in conversation with him. Uh, he does spend some time in southern Italy, where there were some 
there had been for some time Greek settlements, Greek colonies, a region that we at the time was known as Magna Graecia or Greater Greece. Um, and there he comes into contact with other philosophical influences. The Pythagoreans are usually named in this connection. Hmm. Um, ultimately, he does return to Athens and opens up that famous academy, so-called because it was uh, established in a grove outside of Athens named after uh, uh, a Greek hero hmm. um, from whom the, the term academia derives. Um, and there sets up a kind of research establishment to, to carry on uh, the philosophical conversations he, he came to have with Socrates uh, and extend research into the different fields of what we come to think of now as, as philosophy. Uh, to, to sort of cap it off, he's during this period writing his dialogues, of course, but he does briefly take an excursus into sort of applying uh, his philosophical ideas, the proposals that he develops regarding the good life, regarding the best regime, in a couple of journeys to Sicily, where he attempts to, you know, people know, of course, of Plato's famous philosopher King, the, the figures who, because of their philosophical knowledge, their, their wisdom, uh, are at least on the Republic's telling best fit to rule over a city state, rule over the political community with a view to its good. Uh, one way, when Plato travels to Sicily, you know, you can think of this as Plato's attempt to actually bring that paradigm down to earth yeah. uh, through the influence he's hoping to exert on a Sicilian tyrant by the name of Dionysius. Um, he does travel to Sicily twice making this effort and it doesn't go well, needless to say. One of these expeditions ends with him nearly getting executed, getting sold into slavery, and then by a, you know, a startling series of reversals, finally being bought uh, his freedom back from associates and brought back to Athens. Um, this doesn't stop him from trying again, but the second attempt is equally unsuccessful. And a friend of his by the name of Dion, who he's hoping will sort of grab the reins in Sicily is killed. Um, and that's the end of, of Plato's noble effort to try to make his, his proposal a reality. Huh. But his, his efforts to sort of integrate philosophical wisdom with the way that we actually lead our lives here and now on the ground does live on in the form of the dialogues themselves. We're, we're going to turn to the dialogues in a second, but first I'm curious, do we have depictions of Socrates from other students of his, or is it predominantly through Plato? Certainly the, the portrait that exerted the greatest influence is through Plato, but we do have other literary depictions. Um, and we do in fact have other Socratic writings or Socratic dialogues, far less well known, but I did mention that there was the Socratic circle around Socrates. Right. Um, you can think of the, the Athenian soldier and statesman Xenophon as one of these Socratic writers who's also concerned to vindicate Socrates, um, sort of salvage his reputation after the trial and execution and see what it, and show what a great blessing he was to Athens. But you also have other uh, minor Socratic writers as well who, although they, their dialogues don't survive in anything like the shape that Plato's do, nevertheless are evidence that um, people were interpreting Socrates' identity and mission and contesting it right from the very beginning, from the first generation. I wouldn't want to leave out either, of course, there's Aristophanes' famous depiction in the clouds, right. 
which reads a bit more, I have to say, at least on my reading, like a lampoon of the philosophical type in general. There's all this stuff about Socrates making his great entrance in a balloon because he wants to get a better look up at the heavens, um, trying to measure out the length of gnats or, or fleas jumps by painting their legs. This reads to me more like a, like a satire of the philosophical type in general um, than necessarily the, the more practically oriented inquiry of Socrates that we get from, from Plato and elsewhere. Um, one last thing I should mention is we have testimony from Aristotle too, and I think that's quite important. Mm -hmm. Scattered remarks here and there throughout his writings, I'm thinking of the Nicomachean Ethics, for instance, but also uh, the metaphysics even, uh, that gives us some corroborating evidence for a few of the central features that were most confident uh, really did belong to the historical Socrates. Um, I mean, the point about bringing philosophy down to the world of men, of course, uh, his, I mean, his concern for the ethical as sort of the overarching philosophical concern. Um, the idea that the happy life is to be secured by living with virtue mm -hmm. and that living with virtue means living with wisdom. Uh, in one passage in book six of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle uh, puts it like this, that Socrates thought all of the virtues of character, justice, courage, temperance, all of these were really forms of prudence, hmm. forms of practical knowledge, in other words, knowledge of what to do, knowledge of what to fear and be confident about, knowledge of what to enjoy and be repelled by, that kind of intellectual reading of what character really is. Yeah. Um, that's, these are just some of the features that Aristotle attests to us. Finally, I, I would also mention the concern for definitions. So that the question, what is such and such? What is justice? What is piety? That also we can be very confident was was a central part of Socrates' philosophical mission. So we have Xenophon, other members of the Socratic circle, but I think I'm on fairly solid ground when I say Plato is one of the best known philosophers of the Western tradition. You called him the great and dazzling thinker. Absolutely. What explains his popularity? What explains Plato's popularity? Um, he is taking on the best of the Socratic style the concern for the intellectual life is something that is an integral part of human life as a whole. It's, it's a quest that belongs to all of us, right? Um, whatever might be said about Plato's own standing as an Athenian aristocrat and, and his own audience and how he would have understood his own concerns, I think it's indisputable that what Plato has left behind belongs to all human beings because, mm -hmm. as he himself would have put it, we're all knowers. We all have this capacity to seek the truth. Um, and to seek it in a way that, that has bearing on the conduct of our own lives. We can all ask ourselves the question, how should I live? What are the best lights I can find for deciding that question? And these questions and particular ways of pursuing them are on dramatic display in the dialogues in, in, in very beguiling form, sometimes disturbing form. But whether beguiling or disturbing, the, 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 the invitation to to join in on these conversations is, a, is an ever fresh one, I think. Let's turn to the dialogues. We know Plato as the writer of dialogues. So say a word about the form, writing in the form of a dialogue, and why did Plato choose to write this way? Why not just write an essay? I like to think about the dialogue form in Plato as the coming together of, of two things. There's the practice of the historical Socrates, you can think of as, as going around asking these definitional questions that have bearing on our lives, how we should live, in conversation with people. 
Um, Socrates famously disavowing that he had anything to teach. He doesn't claim to have knowledge he can impart to others, yeah. but he does think that he can draw us into the search for knowledge and hopefully approximate, finally attain knowledge hmm. through conversation. That's one of the two things I mentioned. The second yeah. is, uh, think of the literary, the sort of literary status quo. What, what's one very salient literary form you've got? It's tragedy, tragedy and comedy, right? So the dramatic form is well suited for depicting the stakes, if you like. If you think of uh, Antigone and the, and the sort of the great back and forth line by line uh, disagreements between Creon and Antigone, for example, these are literary forms that are available to display the stakes, what can go well and what can go wrong, depending on how our search for the truth goes. In the, that coming together then of the historical Socrates and the literary form, I think we've got um, a good sense of what made the dialogue form a fitting one for Socrates, for, pardon, for Plato to deploy. Um, there's also, you know, the fact that by distancing himself from the proposals in the dialogues, even if you've spent some time with the dialogues, you'll know that some dialogues can go on and on and on with a single speaker, uh, just setting forth a particular vision of things or a particular argument. Um, but even there, you know, you never see, the dialogue never says Plato, colon, right? Right, yeah. Uh, it's never the man himself who's uh, giving his authorial voice, uh, lending his authorial voice to the view. Um, his choice to do that, I think, you can think of it as, a kind of descendant of Socrates' own modesty. Socrates doesn't think he has a kind of knowledge he can just impart to you, mm. right? He doesn't think that that's the way he's going to help you on the path to seeking wisdom or to seeking the good life. Plato too, you might think here is claiming, look, I have not found the truth definitively once and for all, but I'm confident about these proposals. So even at his most, you might think, dogmatic, Plato's still maintaining a certain critical distance from his proposals and inviting you to see how well they fare when it comes to the questions that motivated the search in the first place, and then, and then to jump into the conversation yourself. Seth Bernardetti, the great professor of classics, quote, what philosophy is seems to be inseparable from the question of how to read Plato, end quote. So Marcus, the million dollar question, how do we read Plato? How should we read these dialogues? What should we be looking for? The stakes are high, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing less than the question of how to live, right? <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> there you go. I think um, in some of what I was just saying, you find the beginnings of an answer, at least an answer that I take seriously. We're being invited to a conversation, right? So the first thought I would have to offer is um, read them as dialogues. Don't treat the dialogue form as window dressing that you can, or, or, or uh, wrapping paper, if you like, that you can just crumple up and throw away and find arguments or doctrines or modern philosophical journal articles hiding underneath. Yeah. Um, treat the conversations as seriously and, and take the literary details seriously. There's a balance to be found there between um, actually paying attention to arguments when they're given on the one hand, and on the other, actually taking care to notice who is saying what, what kind of character is, is Plato depicting here? What's the connection between who they are, as Plato sees it, 
and what they're saying and what they think the truth is or what they think the answer to this question is. There's an intimate connection throughout the dialogues, uh, I think you'll find, between the views a person is, the views that a person puts forward on the one hand or the moves that they make in the dialectic and who they are, what their character is. Plato, I think, is very good at showing how these two things interact with each other, the state of your soul, if you like, and, and how you stand in relationship to the truth or to the intellectual search. And that's one of the virtues, I think, if you're thinking, what can I get from Plato that I can't get, say, from Aristotle, for example, is this dramatic display. Mm. Um, and if you're interested in reading Plato, not just um, as a sort of intellectual curiosity, uh, but as a means of reflecting for yourself on how you live your life, then that can be a very helpful exercise to, to look at these figures, um, say a sophist like Thrasymachus or Gorgias uh, or Socrates himself in the different ways he's portrayed throughout the dialogues and look at how they stand in relationship to the proposals they make. That doesn't mean you should always throw away, you, you know, you look for the opponent of Socrates and then you immediately throw away what they say or, or reject it or mock it and then buy the, the Socratic thing or what you think is the Platonic thing. Because again, so uh, Plato is, is portraying these conversations. And so he's inviting you to see what the merits are in the competing sides. Where did the conversation go well? Where could it have gone wrong? Were there any missed avenues that we should have sort of rolled the tape back on and, and considered? These are the sorts of uh, moves in the active reading you do when you take up a dialogue uh, that can make it a, a fruitful intellectual exercise. Uh, that phrase you use there, active reading, this is difficult, right? This is hard work. You actually have to come into the conversation and do that work you just mentioned. How could this conversation have gone differently? Did they miss an avenue? Is there a more obvious answer? Why was this answer given and why did that person give it? That's hard work. That's right. It is hard work. It, it, you're doing philosophy. As soon as you give it a shot, you're, you're there with him, right? You're with Socrates. Um, and so you begin to feel, I think, some of the, the exertions that sometimes lead some of Socrates' interlocutors to throw up their hands. Uh, there's the famous moment in the middle of the Mino where after sort of getting shot down a few times, trying to define virtue and, and think about its nature, you know, just gives up and says, you know, well, maybe inquiry is impossible. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we can never find any truth, right? Uh, and so the, it just shows you that it's a, it's a difficult matter. Um, yeah. But the Socratic response, people often remember that this is, the next moment is when Socrates, one of the places where Socrates introduces this myth of recollection of the soul existing before we're born into this world. But there's another moment in that exchange that I find uh, equally captivating. Socrates, after introducing some reasons to think inquiry is possible, uh, that we really can attain the truth, that our questions can guide us to their destination, um, he says, look, whatever you think of this particular proposal, however accurate you think it is to the facts, at least it will make us more zealous and brave men in the search for the truth. Mm. And it's that instinct, it's, that it's the place where Socrates gives his confidence to the search itself, the worthwhileness of the search itself, despite the fact that he recognizes he lacks knowledge. It's that move and that posture that I think we should keep in mind when we're sweating under the labor of, uh, of the active reading. Yeah. Well, thankfully, when we turn to the specific dialogues, we'll have you to help us help us through that labor. Uh, but let me ask you this. 
is there a platonic teaching, a sort of overarching philosophy that we can trace across these dialogues? I would say, I, I would start with the idea that there is an overarching platonic concern, hmm. which informs the different concrete proposals that he tries out from dialogue to dialogue. So, so just as I said that Socrates disavows knowledge, he doesn't claim to have a kind of expertise or wisdom he can just directly communicate to students, um, but he does have certain convictions that these conversations are worth having, the questions are worth raising, and they are our best shot at arriving at the truth or the wisdom that can help our lives go well. Plato has a version of this, I think, and you see it on display in the dialogues. He has certain, if you like, guiding concerns or priorities um, that he wants to try out. What, what are the best philosophical reasons or best concrete visions we can give for these core ideas or core intuitions, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Um, some of those are the Socratic ones. So the idea that um, we're all seeking happiness and happiness is to be found by way of virtue and virtues intimately connected with, or maybe even identified with a kind of wisdom. Mm. These Socratic concerns, I think you can see in the dialogues, Plato taking them up. In some dialogues, maybe hewing a little more closely to the historical Socrates. In other places, tracing out their impl the implication of these views in different ways. And that's one way of understanding the, the kind of broad um, set of distinctions that scholars usually find helpful for thinking about the dialogues. Um, Sometimes it's thought in terms of chronology, but that also can be a, a bit, uh, there's disagreement about that too, but just thinking about the dialogues in terms of a kind of early, middle and late uh, chronology or, or set of phases. Um, early dialogues, if you like, where Plato is again, more concerned to give a portraiture of Socrates the man and why his enterprise was worthwhile, why it was a good thing for Athens and a good thing for us to keep around. Um, portraying that Socratic search for virtue by way of asking definitional questions, having conversations with people who claim to have wisdom, have knowledge, have virtue, have something to teach, um, in which these conversations usually end in an impasse. The Greek word is aporia. Um, we, we come to a halt, something's gone wrong and we don't know how to proceed. We thought we had knowledge, turns out we don't. I suppose we better keep searching. But then the dialogue partner usually says, some other time, Socrates, I'm busy. Uh, early dialogues, right? These more Socratic uh, dialogues. Then in the, if we want to think in general terms, at least just as a sketch, in this middle collection of dialogues, we have Plato still concerned with the kind of Socratic priorities I described, but then tracing out their implications. You know, what must the world and what must we fundamentally be like if the Socratic convictions have purchase, if, if they're on the right track, that wisdom is attainable for us, that it's worth pursuing, um, that our welfare depends upon seeking and attaining this wisdom. And um, that this search, as we seek wisdom, we recognize that 
living well, happiness, if you like, is integrally connected to justice or to morality, that these two things aren't even in principle in competition with each other. That's another one of these Socratic concerns you can see on display in the Apology. Um, it comes to the surface in the Gorgias in a way that I at least think is plausibly connected to the historical Socrates. Um, these priorities, okay, in the middle dialogues, Plato is tracing out the implications. If that's really true, Let's just try this out. What must the world really be like and what must we really be like? And, and it's because of that concern that we get these more elaborate metaphysical and epistemological uh, visions of the forms as these realities that transcend the world of perception and change that we're familiar with, but which our knowledge depends on, that we have a kind of kinship with these timeless realities. Mm. Uh, which makes our knowledge possible, makes it possible for us to seek knowledge. And as a result of which, you have the connected idea uh, that, that the soul is immortal, right? That it's of a piece with these forms that transcend time and space. Mm. Um, those teachings, if you like, um, if we can put it that way, at least, uh, at least somewhat uh, informally, um, they're what Plato is most famous for. People think, well, what did Plato think? The theory of forms, the immortality of the soul, that we ought to get out of this world of change and into this timeless condition where we can just enjoy contemplating the forms. The, the, these are all springing up, I think it's plausible to say, out of the original Socratic intuitions. It's part of Plato's way of working out how things must really hang together if it's true that we human beings are fundamentally knowers we seek the truth and that search is worth it and how that goes and attaining the end of that search is ultimately what makes the biggest impact on how our life goes. Hmm. And then briefly to just to round it out, you have a, a final collection, rough collection of dialogues where Plato then gets reflective about his own proposals in the way that he had been reflective about Socrates' mission. Uh, he turns things around, exposes difficulties and limitations and further questions with these platonic proposals in a way that keeps the conversation going once again. You mentioned there the theory of forms. And let's maybe we can drill down on that right now. And I'm just going to turn it over to you. I'm not going to try to wade into this. So explain again this theory of forms and why it's so important to reading and understanding Plato. Sure, yes. Um, so as I said, each dialogue is, if you like, a different trial run on the sorts of questions that Plato's concerned with. Um, if we talk about a one theory of forms, if you like, um, it's a, just a sort of a helpful way of talking about different versions of this proposal that come up in different contexts. So most famously, of course, we have the Republic with its vision of the education of the philosopher King in the central books, where uh, the, the transition from the world of perception to the world of these uh, timeless realities is likened to this journey out of a cave where we're trapped in shadows up into the world of, of real light and, and real truth. Um, that's the most famous place where, where this, this proposal about the forms is, is given, but it's also plausible that versions of it are found, say, in the symposium's account of beauty itself, mm. and of course in, in the Phaedo too, where, um, it, which is the dramatic depiction of Socrates' execution, and so dramatically is concerned with what's gonna to happen to Socrates, is the soul immortal? Yeah. Um, there, there too, you have the forms discussed under this heading. Um, you can think of the timelessness of the forms and the immortality of the soul as, as two partners of a, of a pair, right? Mm. The, the two are discussed together. Um, if we can 
again, the details are going to are going to vary from place to place. And this is the, the sort of the, the details in the text are the sorts of things that scholars uh, will get exercised about. But if we can sort of sketch it in a kind of general way, the proposal is just that forms are for Plato what are going to account for um, the kind of everyday contact with the truth that we have uh, in the world of our experience. Um, so to make that a little more precise, um, we encounter sameness in difference as we go around the world. We encounter many dogs, but we, just by saying many dogs, if we, if we suppose that that phrase has purchase on reality, um, we recognize a kind of sameness in difference, a kind of unity in plurality. We suppose that all these dogs, uh, black labs, golden retrievers, poodles, they all manifest a single character which makes it more than words when I say many dogs, right? And it's that sameness that somehow manifest in many places and many times that um, we're recognizing and that we have purchase on when, when we grow in knowledge. So knowledge has something to do with contact with this unity of character or nature that shows up in our experience. That ultimately is going to be accounted for in terms of the forms. And then there, there are further thoughts about how the forms are, if you like, the exemplars of these characteristics that are only ever imperfectly on display in this world. So no single dog is gonna match up perfectly, if you like, with your textbook dog anatomy <laughs> diagrams, if you like, uh, to use a bit of a cartoonish example. Right. Uh, but that there's that further thought that, that forms are, if you like, the ideal exemplars of the objects of our everyday experience. And so when we judge about things, we're not just subsuming them under these, these unitary forms or characters. We're also assessing how they measure up to those forms or characters. And so by bringing those two thoughts together in the concept of a form, Plato is accounting not just for knowledge, but he's also accounting for goodness. Mm. Why in the Republic, we ultimately get the forms climaxing in this vision of, of the good itself over and above the individual forms. There's this thought that, that knowledge and the ideal are intimately connected. Marcus, one last question for you. And this will be a sort of teaser to the sort of things we're going to be asking ourselves as we read these individual dialogues. Now, we are, of course, the James Madison program in American ideals and institutions. And many members of our staff are visiting fellows and society members have dedicated uh, their careers, their lives in defense of this democratic republic of ours. So this is a very long windup for a very simple question, Marcus. Plato, friend of democracy or foe? <laughs> of course. Well, by my reading, and, and I suspect I'm not alone here, of course, um, I have to say that, you know, Plato ambivalent at best about democracy <laughs> and in his most democratic friendly moments. Um, but of course we have to remember always when we say this and when we read Plato's harsh indictments of democracy say in the last books of the Republic, uh, books eight and nine for instance, um, that what he's reacting against is the Athenian democracy of his day, of yeah. course, yeah. something much more like a pure democracy or a direct democracy than what we think of when we think of democracy. It's when Plato comes out against democracy, he has in his sights, I think, above all, the idea of the crowd, you know, mm -hmm. that, that sort of mentality in which we can find ourselves caught up when our po political passions are all fired up 
um, and often becomes a, a source of decisions we later come to regret. Uh, Plato, of course, having in mind the execution of Socrates, right? Uh, in a generation, you have, uh, you know, the, the death of Socrates is, is uh, a great black mark on, on Athens. Um, it's, it's that, I think, that lends Plato his ire, uh, sort of his criticisms uh, towards uh, democratic forms. But even this is, uh, is, is tempered a bit in some of uh, Plato's other writings. So if we think plausibly enough that the laws is sort of the cap of Plato's uh, political reflection, it's as far as we can tell, it was indeed his last dialogue, maybe not even finished uh, before his passing. Um, we find there a, um, a more moderate uh, view of the democratic element in politics, at least. There is the idea there that um, for a political community to be free, we're going to want to avoid both pure democratic and pure monarchic forms. We have a step in the direction of something like a mixed constitution, where these two different trajectories or tendencies in political form get moderated by a kind of mixing. How that's exactly to be worked out, of course, is a question that he goes on to take up, that Aristotle takes up in his own books on politics. Um, but that's, I think, the closest we get to Plato being friendly towards, uh, towards democracy. I don't think he ever quite forgets uh, where it landed his master, unfortunately. Right. I lied. I have one more question for you. All right. And you and I were not planning to discuss this, so I'm putting you on the spot here. But here's the question. How has reading and studying Plato affected your life? Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Here's a question I can really get excited about. <laughs> you weren't excited about all of these questions? No, of course. They're all <laughs> thrilling. But, but what I love about this is that it sort of brings to life what I've been talking about this whole time, which is that when you read these dialogues, you're becoming part of the conversation. And that is something that anyone who picks them up can do. And that has always thrilled me since I first uh, began reading Plato. Is that, you know, you can really take up the search that, that Socrates uh, in his different ways and the different dialogues uh, invites you to. Um, and that I think can be to sort of, to bring it to my own case as someone who also works on these texts and, and related texts professionally, I think that can be a very helpful corrective to uh, what has happened in the intervening millennia. Uh, mm. Philosophy has become a discipline, a profession. Um, and that makes it, I think it can make it a bit more challenging, whether you're a professional or a lay person, to tap into that idea of philosophy as something that has direct bearing on the conduct of your life. Yeah. I think Plato, more even than Aristotle, more maybe than any other of the philosophical authors that I spend my time with, Plato's the one who reminds you of what philosophy can look like as a, as a merely human thing, as the search for a kind of mature, articulate understanding of yourself and your place in the world that can help you help guide your thinking, help guide even your decisions maybe uh, at certain points in life. Yeah. And that is a, a perennial and a beautiful thing. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this episode. Our guest today has been Marcus Gibson. This has been our introduction to Plato. Marcus will be with us in the weeks and months to come as we tackle individual dialogues and enter this conversation ourselves. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a delight. Thanks so much, Nina. There we go. Dr. Marcus Gibson with an introduction to Plato before we set forth on our voyage through the dialogues. We'll begin with a close read of the Apology, which will air in just a couple of weeks. 
We encourage everyone to join us in the conversation and read along. You'll be able to find these dialogues just about anywhere, but Marcus and I will both be using John Cooper's collection of the complete works of Plato. I've put a link to the book in the show notes, so check that out if you'd like to literally be on the same page. Stay tuned for the episode on Plato's Apology, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get a notification once that episode and others become available. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>